Book Eight, Chapter Two of Round the Block by John Belbooten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Curtain up. At eight and three quarters p.m., the curtain was rung up and discovered a rustic scene in the midst of which Mrs. Slapman, Fidelia, was seated. She was dressed in a white frock with low neck and a flat hat, and was trimmed out with red ribbons in all directions. She looked young and pretty. Only an anxious knitting of her eyebrows revealed the cares and troubles of intellect. Mrs. Slapman was applauded by a unanimous clapping of hands. She was seated in a red velvet rocking chair at a small but costly table on which stood an expensive vase filled with flowers. These properties, though few, were intended to signify boundless affluence and luxury. Fidelia languidly waved a jeweled fan and sighed. "'Will he never come?' said she. She had hardly made this remark when by a singular coincidence Alberto, Overtop, entered from the left wing and threw himself with as much grace as his tights would permit at her feet. She emitted a small shriek and gave him her hand to kiss which he did with ecstasy. Alberto was habited like an Italian gentleman in good circumstances, and no one would have suspected his poverty if he had not commenced the dialogue by an affecting allusion to his last scudi, which brought tears to the eyes of the fair Fidelia. Such trifling questions as lovers alone can ask and answer then passed between them and at last came the solemn interrogatory from the kneeling Alberto. And will you always love me, dearest? Fidelia turned her meek orbs toward the ceiling, raised her hand, said, Forever, and was about to add, I swear, when Bidette, Miss Wick, rushed upon the scene with the intelligence. He comes. Who? asked Alberto. My father, shrieked Fidelia, go, that way. She pointed with her small alabaster hand to the left wing. Alberto vanished as per request, while Fidelia, with well-affected calmness, commenced humming an opera air and fanning herself. Fidette, the favorite maid, pretended to readjust a flower in her mistress' hair. These feminine artifices were to throw the coming father off his scent. But the father, Mr. Johnson, the junior of a small book-publishing house, was sharp-eyed, though he lacked spectacles. As he emerged from the right wing, he caught a distinct view of a pair of souls disappearing in the distance, and benignantly asked, Who is that, my child? The child answered, only the postman, pa. Where is the letter? he asked. Please, sir, interrupted Bidette, observing her mistress' confusion. There wasn't no letter. He mistook the house for another, sir. The father nodded his head to express his complete satisfaction with this explanation, and then told Bidette to leave the spot, as he had something of the utmost importance to tell his daughter. Fidette pouted and withdrew. 
giving a bewitching shake of her striped calico dress to signify her hatred of brutal fathers this touch of nature drew plaudits from those among the audience who were but slightly acquainted with miss wick the others looked on with critical indifference the father took a chair thrust out his legs like a reigning prince and proceeded in a story of unnecessary length to tell his daughter that he owed one hundred and seventy thousand florins to signor radicasso and would be a ruined man in forty-eight hours if that sum were not paid life in that event would be simply insupportable he had procured a pistol to blow out his brains but had subsequently concluded to make one more effort to save himself he would therefore appeal to his daughter as a father and ask her to marry signor radicasso and so liquidate the debt to-morrow he did not wish to influence her choice far from it but if she did not consent he should feel under the painful necessity of shooting himself on the spot the father produced a pistol and held it to his left ear fidelia looking like a marble statue of grief said in a low but perfectly audible voice stay i will wed him this was enunciated with the calmness of despair not a gesture not a twinge of the features nor an accent to indicate emotion of any kind it was in quiet efforts like these that mrs slapman excelled when the applause elicited by this stroke of genius had ceased mr chickson signor radicasso came rather awkwardly upon the stage his eyes and it might be added his legs rolled absently about as if he were endeavoring to recall his part or were in the inward act of composing a poem your future husband fidelia said the father fidelia rose from her seat still imperturbable chickson advanced with a sliding motion and then paused as if he had forgotten what to do mrs slapman was heard to whisper something probably the cue but he only rolled his eyes heavily in response a look of displeasure marred her serene features and instead of fainting away in signor radicasso's arms as she should have done she dropped into the embrace of her father taking that personage quite unexpectedly and nearly knocking him off his chair chickson projected himself forward at the same time to catch her and in so doing lost his balance and just escaped by an effort from sprawling on the floor then he looked helplessly at the audience and there was no longer any doubt entertained that chickson was slightly intoxicated getting drunk now and then was an infirmity of chickson's genius the stage manager had the good sense to bring down the curtain on this painful scene, and the next moment there was a dull sound, as of somebody falling on the floor behind the green baize. After an interval of fifteen minutes, protracted by the unexpected indisposition of the poet, and the consequent necessity of entrusting Signor Radicasso to other hands, the curtain rises again and discloses alberto 
in a humble cot, surrounded by three-legged stools, and other evidences of extreme poverty. He is seated on a rickety table, in preference to the greater uncertainty of the stools. His arms are folded, and his head droops upon his breast. In this attitude, he begins to soliloquize, and informs the audience what they did not know before, that, from a clump of shrubbery, he had seen fully as much as they of the preceding scene. He does not blame Fidelia. Oh, no! In her cruel dilemma she could do no less. But he curses, and curses again, and continues to curse for some time, that fate which deprives him of the paltry means, one hundred and seventy thousand florins, to buy off the heartless monster, Radicasso, having wrecked himself upon destiny to his own satisfaction. He suddenly remembers that he has not eaten anything for thirty-six hours. He feels in all his pockets successively, but finds nothing. He then draws from his bosom a portrait of his father, set with antique gems. He gazes upon it reverently, kisses it, and says, Shall I part with this sacred memento for vulgar bread? Never. Let me die. He restores the portrait to his bosom, folds his arms again, inclines his head, and shuts his eyes, as if preparing to expire comfortably. All this time a fat red face, belonging to a corpulent body, has been watching the depressed lover from the right wing. As Alberto utters the last sad ejaculation, a thick hand attached to a short arm raises a kerchief to a pair of small eyes in this fat red face and wipes them. Then the stout gentleman reflects a moment, nods his head approvingly, draws forth a wallet, opens it slowly, takes out some paper that rustles like banknotes, produces a memorandum book, writes a few lines on one of the leaves hastily with a pencil, tears out the leaf, and closes the leaf and the banknotes in an envelope, emerges with his entire figure into the full light of the stage, walks stealthily toward Alberto with a pair of creaking shoes that would have waked the soundest sleeper, places the notes on the table by his side, raises his hands to heaven, murmuring, God bless the boy, and retires in the same feline but tumultuous manner. This mysterious visitor was Bignolio, Matthew Maltboy, a rich money-lender, uncle of Alberto, and commonly reported to be the tightest old skinflint in Venice. After a pause, scarcely long enough to allow his uncle's heavy footsteps to die away in the distance, Alberto came out of his reverie. His first act was to look at the ceiling, then at the floor, then all about him, everywhere but at the note on the table. At last, when nothing else remained to be scrutinized, his eyes naturally fell upon this valuable communication. What is this? he asked. 
Then he answered his own question by opening the letter and reading it as follows. Venice, October 16th. Dear nephew, I have watched you and know all. You are indeed the son of your father, and I am proud to add the nephew of your uncle. Enclosed are sixty thousand florins. Go to Gincarini Brothers on the Rialto and buy up judgments that they hold against Raudicasso for three times that amount, and offset them against old Corpetto's debts. Raudicasso conceals his property so well that none has ever been found to satisfy these judgments. Drive a sharp bargain and show yourself a chip of the old block. Keep the balance for your wedding gift. Farewell till we meet again. Bignolio. Dear, dear uncle, exclaimed Alberto, carefully buttoning up his pocket over the funds and kissing the letter in transports of joy. And only yesterday he would not lend me a scudi to get my dinner. Generous man, how have I wronged him? Now, fate, I will floor thee and Rodicasso together. Exit Alberto rapidly by shortest land route to the Rialto. Overtop's acting throughout this difficult scene was of a superior order. Nothing could be more natural, for instance, than the buttoning up of his pocket over his uncle's gift. But neither that nor the other strong point, where he exulted in the finest tragedy tones over the anticipated downfall of fate and Rodicasso, produced the slightest sensation among his hearers. Matthew Maltboy paid the penalty of his intimate relations with Overtop by an equal unpopularity. His fine rendition of the character of Bignolio might as well have been played to a select company of gravestones. There was a necessary interval of twenty minutes for the fitting out of the stage, during which time the amateur orchestra performed selections from Semiramide, but happily not loud enough to interfere with the easy flow of conversation all over the room. The second flutist, while looking over his shoulder angrily at the garrulous audience, executed a false note, which almost threw the first and only violinist into fits. In turning round to rebuke the errant performer, the violinist struck his elbow against a similar projection of the other flutist, and knocked a false note out of that gentleman too, besides momentarily ruffling his temper. This little episode diffused unhappiness over the entire music. End of Book 8 Chapter 2